You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. So many young people think that a successful life is an unbroken string of successes, uh, when usually it's just the opposite. Usually it's your failures that you learn from, and it's your mistakes and the bad luck and the misfortunes, some of which are just unavoidable in life, and sometimes are married to bad judgments. But those are the things that if you talk to a lot of successful people about how they became successful, it wasn't because they never had a misstep. It was just the opposite. There seemed to be a lot of inequality in the accessibility of good quality food. We're already known as a state that promotes local food and tries to make local food available to everybody. I don't think we've been completely successful yet, but we're working toward it. Everybody's working toward it. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 101. Trailblazing, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 18th, 2013. Today's guests include Billy Shore, founder and CEO of Share Our Strength, and Sam Hayward, chef and co-owner of Four Street. In seventh grade, we were required to memorize The Road Not Taken by New England poet Robert Frost. I remember my discomfort with having to choose one road over another. I am a both and sort of person. It is always my inclination to attempt to take many paths simultaneously. Doctor, mother, writer, photographer, runner, singer. I hate to miss out on an experience. This has served me well, in that my life is varied and full. It has also caused me to begin following paths that had no clear destination. Often, my only indication that I should be on a given path comes from a strong internal voice. So, on faith, I proceed. When we began this show two years ago, we had a plan. We planned to meet and interview interesting people who are passionately living authentic lives and contributing to the wellness of the world. This we have done, and we have found that one interview has quickly led to another. The show has become an ongoing discussion of what matters most with people who care deeply. Billy Shore and Sam Hayward are two such people. Billy Shore founded the national organization Share Our Strength in 1984 in response to the famine in Ethiopia. His concern has translated to the desire to end childhood hunger in America, no matter what it takes. Sam Hayward, himself an early supporter of Share Our Strength in Maine, seeks to feed Maine people with Maine's local foods. Billy and Sam are both and people. They are highly aware of the need to make decisions and follow the roads not taken, but they are not averse to pursuing many paths at once. It is a pleasure to speak with the trailblazers who join me on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour each week. I hope you are inspired to follow the road or roads not taken in your life. Thank you for joining us.
We're very fortunate in Maine to have connections to people that spend time in other parts of the country and come back and enjoy our beautiful state with us, and not only enjoy our beautiful state with us, but make it a better place to live. One of these people is Billy Shore, who is the founder and CEO of Share Our Strength, which is a national nonprofit, which is ending childhood hunger in America. And I specifically say ending childhood hunger in America because I know your goal is to end childhood hunger by 2015. Uh, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, we actually started with a goal of ending and a, and a real strategic plan to end childhood hunger by 2020. And then when uh, candidate Obama back in 2008 was running, he embraced our plan. And in the chaos of the campaign, something got transposed and it turned into 2015. And we weren't going to quarrel with him because it was the first time a president uh, elect had, had embraced what we were doing. So we got stuck with 2015, but we're actually going to be very close. We may need a little bit more time, but if so, I, I think we'll be able to make the case that we've earned it. Well, yeah, that's that's five years shorter. That's right. It's a big difference. Yeah. And you only started doing this in 1984. Uh, we started Share Strength in 1984, and we didn't start the No Kid Hungry campaign until about 2007. So for many, many years, we were a grant maker to other organizations, which we still are. Um, but then about, uh, I guess, about six, seven years ago now, uh, we developed this very specific campaign of our own and this very kind of concrete you know, stake in the ground said we're going to do this by a certain time. This is one of the things that I was um, interested in when I was reading the article, and of course reading more about you because you've written four books, so you put plenty out there for um, people who are interested to find out more, and that is that you went from um, largely thinking about hunger relief as food banks and smaller efforts, and then you realized you had to do something more systemic. I w I'm reading this article by Jed Coffin, which is in the June 2013 issue of Maine Magazine, and you called it a naive notion that raising money and sending it to food banks could somehow end childhood hunger. You then realized that your approach wasn't systemic and didn't address the symptoms of the deeper issue. How did you come to that place? Well, I think when we started the organization back in 1984, we did have, um, you know, not as deep an understanding of the issue of hunger as we do now. We've come to understand that hunger is really a symptom of a deeper and more complex problem, which is poverty. Um, poverty is hard to solve, and poverty is complex, but feeding a child is not. So we tried to strike this balance between, uh, even if you can't, uh, you know, end poverty, uh, can you address hunger and can you address it effectively and actually end it at least in certain segments of the of the population and as we thought about uh, What we wanted to accomplish we really took to heart the words of a writer named Jonathan Kozel who said you should pick battles that are big enough to matter but small enough to win which I really liked because there's kind of these you know large you know uh, campaigns that we would all love to wage and different ways we'd like to change the world but when it comes to big enough to matter um, small enough to win in our world, we asked ourselves, what, what was that? And we realized that when it came to children in this country, in America, who were hungry on a chronic basis, that was actually a winnable uh, battle. And so we got very refocused around um, not just making grants to other organizations, which we continue to do, but to see if we could use our vantage point, uh, our experience, uh, to some degree exert some leadership to see if we could get people to pull in the same direction. And, and ultimately, that's what we've tried to do around childhood hunger and the, and the effort to end it. What you call a triggering event in one of your books was, I believe, the famine in Ethiopia right. in 1984. And I believe some would argue that that is an event that was um, really not easy to win. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and Ethiopia continues to struggle with 
with famine and hunger. But in 1984, it, it you know just the kind of the serendipitous nature of when things happen. I had worked in government for about uh, eight or nine years at that point for Senator Gary Hart from Colorado. He'd run for president and just um, come in second uh, in the Democratic nomination contest to Walter Mondale. This would have been in you know August of 1984, and so I'd had this very intense period of working with him, traveling to you know all 50 states, sometimes four states a day, and then uh, decompressing after that. Uh, was literally uh, stuck in a traffic jam on Interstate 270 outside of Washington, D.C., and probably doing something I shouldn't have been doing, which was reading the Washington Post while I was stuck in traffic. Uh, but there was a story about 200,000 to die this summer in Ethiopia, and it just seemed, uh, it was, it, you know, for me, it was this jarring juxtaposition between all the issues you talk about in a campaign uh, from the kind of the antiseptic um, venue of a stage and then in the bubble of, you know, the limousine and the Secret Service motorcade and so forth, and then thinking, you know, boy, there are real life and death, you know, issues at stake in, uh, in the decisions we make uh, as I learn more about the Ethiopian famine. And so for me, that was the, the catalyst. And our focus initially at Share Strength was international. We quickly realized that there were significant issues here in the United States as well, and that a lot of our stakeholders and supporters would want us to focus on those, and that we could actually probably realistically make more progress dealing with hunger here in the United States. We continue to make grants uh, to a few places overseas, but most of our focus is here in the U.S. now. Hunger relief, and specifically ending childhood hunger, is something to you that's deeply personal. And it's something that also seems to have some linkage back to a sense of faith, in one of your books, you actually write about, I think it was something about the Jewish faith and uh, sort of the points of light idea. Mm-hmm. So is this something that was um, hard for you to reconcile working in politics over here and then working and thinking over here about the bigger picture? Well, a little bit. I, le- you know, I, I learned a tremendous amount doing the political work that I did and got to work on a, a whole variety of issues and thought it was, you know, would have never done it any other way. Uh, but at the same time, it did feel removed from a lot of the, you know, the, the way people really live their lives. Probably, you know, the most, most personal part of it for me was I had a, a my father uh, was a district administrative assistant to a congressman from Pittsburgh. And uh, my father was this very unpretentious guy, very casual all the time, never wore a watch, never carried a pen, was not a very meticulous person. But uh, this was a time back in the 60s and 70s when uh, members of Congress, uh, Congress wasn't televised, members of Congress didn't come home that much. So for all intents and purposes, for most people, my father was the congressman from Pittsburgh. And if we walked two blocks down the street to get a pizza, which we would do typically on a Friday evening, uh, it would take us about two hours. So many people would come out of their houses and say, uh, Mr. Shore, my aunt lost her social security check or my uncle needs to get into the veterans hospital. Can you help him? And that was just what my dad did. He did it 24 hours a day and the most relaxed way and kept track of it all somehow. And I just grew up thinking, this is what you're supposed to do with your life. You're supposed to help the people in your in your community. He wasn't. He never preached about it. He wasn't a preachy kind of guy. And I don't remember him ever saying, you know, this is what's expected of you. He just kind of modeled the behavior. So in that sense, it, it was very personal, as you say. And is that somehow part of the reason why you ended up going to Washington initially and being part of um, the social revolution that was happening at the time? I think so. I was fascinated by Congress. I was fascinated by um, using public policy to create change uh, in some ways that I'm really, I think, only just beginning to you know, recognize and, and understand and start to reflect on. Share our strength has kind of come full circle that way because we started uh, 
purely uh, doing private uh, sector work and, and funding emergency food assistance programs and community efforts, but have more recently come to realize that there is a way that organizations like ours can intersect in with public uh, institutions, with state governments, with the federal government. Uh, there are programs like School Breakfast and Summer Feeding and the, the Food Stamp, uh, SNAP, what we now call SNAP program, that private organizations like ours can have a big impact in, in shaping and making more effective. So I think there's a, you know, if you think of kind of a three-legged stool with government, the private sector, and the business community all working together. Um, you can get some pretty big things done that way. You talked about in one of your books your son, Zach, getting on the bus himself. And actually, I believe he was um, striking a pose with two other young men. As Well, tell, tell the story about this. So, well, this was, I think, on Zach's field. I think it was on his field trip to New York, there I think you you're okay. referring to, when he was, a, I think, an, uh, an eighth grader. And... Uh, um, I, I just I remember it, um, you know, just being this very kind of poignant moment for me as uh, understanding that uh, you know one of my sons was kind of growing up and was on his was kind of on his own. I remember the kids getting on the bus and all the parents being, um, you know, very anxious and waving to them and trying to get their attention. And uh, the minute they stepped on the bus, the, none of them were looking out the window. They were paying no attention to us. They were they had really. Um, Kind of uh, just kind of grown up, and then I think there was um, there was also a time I wrote about after uh, 9/11 where he'd gone down to the uh, the mall uh, in a in a show of just you know kind of support for the nation on the National Mall uh, by the Washington Monument, which a lot of people did. And uh, again, I started to realize uh, at that moment, though, like my father, I had not been particularly preachy to Zach and had not said, you know, kind of this is what's expected of you. Um, some of that kind of social change work and that notion of being engaged in your community um, had, had kind of seeped through. Uh, and he'd started to make his own decisions. But I was, you know, as a dad, excited and proud to see that he was uh, getting engaged in that way. I'm, I'm sure it was exciting for you because you also um, talk a lot about some of the misadventures of Zach and yes. Molly, <laughs> especially in one of these books, which is inter interesting for me because I have children of this age and I definitely have been involved in um, overseeing some of their misadventures. But that interesting contrast between going out into the world and doing something larger and also kind of retreating into your own individual world and doing something equally important but somehow on a smaller scale with your own children perhaps even having less control over them yes well what was that like for you yeah well that, that that's uh you know look that the toughest job any of us have i think is parenting there's no question about it i've got three kids now zach's now uh 28 and molly's 24 and i've got an eight-year-old son nate um and, um, you know, with Zach in particular, I was probably, uh, you know, traveling in a way more than I should have been. I probably, you know, I think I was a very good father, and I think he thinks I was a very good father, but I think I also missed a lot of things that as you get older and wiser, you would not do again. You wouldn't, you know, make those kind of sacrifices uh, again. And so Zach had a little bit of a rocky path to where he is today. He's incredibly successful, actually works for a radio station, the all-news station in Washington, D.C., WTOP, uh, and as a father himself, married and with a, with a baby. Um, so, you know, I think you kids have to, you know, find their way, and I, and I, I think you have to, again, you know, model it to the, to the degree that you can. Uh, but at the end, they find their way, and they're all on their own timetable. You know, there's such pressure, I think, today 
among so many young people to feel like the you know kind of the parade is marching by and they better get in it in just the right place where they're going to have failed. Um, and I and I think in particular, so many young people think that a successful life is an unbroken string of successes uh, when usually it's just the opposite. Usually it's your failures that you learn from, uh, and it's your mistakes and the bad luck and the you know the misfortunes, some of which are just unavoidable in life, uh, and sometimes are you know married to bad judgments. But those are the things that you know if you talk to a lot of successful people about how they became successful. It wasn't because they never had a misstep. It was just the opposite. We'll return to our program in a moment. On the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, we've long understood the important link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the subject is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The healthiest communities are the ones that have figured out how to develop new and unique structures to support needs and wants at many different levels. When we look at a healthy school, it supports the needs of the individual, the classroom, the building, the district, the community, and therefore, the family as a whole. Building a plan for financial health and well-being is the same. What we can learn from managing a portfolio of assets is that sometimes one part of the plan needs to address the risk that allows another part to pursue opportunity. This three-step dance of preserve, manage and pursue is the core of good design. If you are part of an organization that is struggling with how best to evolve to a better place, we can help. Send us an email to info at shepherdfinancialmain.com and we'll help your organization learn how to evolve. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. There is this sense of always going from the internal to the external to the internal to the external. When I'm looking at two of your books, The Cathedral Within and The Light of Conscience, I mean, there, there is this, this sense that there has to be something in you that you return to in order to know that you're heading in the right direction, that you're building this cathedral. This book, The Cathedral Within, I think that it was called initially, you proposed it as something else. Yes. I, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember what I even thought about calling it. I think it was something about cathedral building, but I remember, uh, what I do remember is meeting with this really wonderful editor at Random House named Ann Godoff, um, who is now an editor somewhere else. But uh, as as she was hearing my kind of pitch, you know, my, my 30 seconds, what this book was going to be about because it wasn't written yet, uh, she said to me, well, she said, if it's the cathedral within that you're writing about, uh, then that's a book that I want to publish. And it really, really affected my thinking because I realized that, you know, she was helping me 
kind of again make this bridge between the book that I wanted to write and the book that she thought people would want to read and how you make it more interdirected and you know, at the end of the day, for Share Our Strength, that's certainly when you look at who our most effective supporters and stakeholders are, they're all people who have been affected um, and impacted internally, have changed in some way. I always, I always think it's interesting when people say they've been moved by something, because when you, when you say you've been moved, that means you started one place and you ended somewhere else. And that's what all social transformation is really about. So we try to create experiences where people have that sense of being moved, where they have that sense of being transformed even. Um, I call it bearing witness, going to places and letting yourself uh, see and feel and, um, uh, and, and sharing what you felt in ways that you, you know, that can almost kind of sneak up on you that you weren't expecting. Is it also possible that what you're doing is connecting them with something inside themselves that already existed so that they aren't really changed so much as just connecting with that still small voice that people talk about? Well, I think that's a great point. That's a great way to put it. Um, you know, the fundamental conviction that runs through the whole idea of share our strength is that people, that everybody does have a strength to share, that everybody does have something within them that they want to give, that they're, that people are looking for meaning. This is not a you know an original idea on our part. We all know this. People are searching for meaning um, all across our society. And so to create vehicles in which they can access that, and I guess access that part of themselves, to your point, I think has, has been, you know, whether we were always doing that at the conscious level or not, I think that's really what the work has been about. We've had multiple people on our show who are working towards um, the ending of childhood hunger. We've had, we actually had John Woods on very early, who's the main share of strength. We've had most recently Kristen Miele from Good Shepherd Food Bank here in Maine. Um, but early on, we had Mark Swan from the Purple Street Research Center here in Portland. And a lot of listeners have known him for the last 20 years doing this good work that he does with homelessness and um, feeding the hungry and um, teenagers and the new teen shelter that they have. And he was on the Share Our Strength bus just the other day, going at a taste of the nation. And he said to me, you know, I read uh, Billy Shore's book. I, it changed me. It's something that I kind of held on to. And I can't tell you how many copies I have given out to other people. So it is actually important that you've documented in some way your own journey, starting in your book, 1995 to now, because it gives other people hope. Well, I, I, ho- I hope that's the case. I, th- I, you know, I always think of the words of the writer uh, and the uh, uh, the director Alaya Kazan, who was a movie director, and he once wrote that uh, the more personal something is, the more universal that it is. And so, you know, usually I find well, my first instinct when I'd start to write a story about my children or something like that is I would think, well, like, why in the world would anybody care about this? But you know, those types of personal stories really do have, uh, you know, they strike a universal chord, and people people get them. Is there also the possibility when you put yourself out there this much, when you make it so personal, that um, you could be more easily hurt when things don't go your way or when people don't see what you're trying to put across or maybe misinterpret? Uh, That's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. Again, I think... um you know, vulnerability is a um, kind of an effective place to lead from for, for, you know, for for those same reasons. And so I think making yourself vulnerable, because we all are, um, is really saying um, that is making yourself authentic. And I think authentic, authenticity is the key to leadership. So uh, when people lead from this 
you know, kind of, uh, I don't know what, you know, whether it's a man or a woman, this kind of macho sense of, you know, uh, having all the answers and, and having done everything uh, right. I think that uh, doesn't ring true to people. I think that's not authentic. So I think the idea of being a little bit vulnerable and being a little bit personal, uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a risk, but I don't think it's a big one because I think, again, all, you know, people know that all, basically all of us are like that. You spend a lot of time um, traveling to different places, and you've talked about this in the books that you've written, and working with um, the leader of a children's choir or, or a group that was uh, employs people who are released from prison, and meeting with other people who are involved in social change. What are some of the common denominators that you've noticed amongst the people, other people who are really doing something um, in the world of social, social justice? Yeah. Well, I think that's a great question. I think uh, often... Um, People are, um, you know, leading from a place that relates to where their own need is, um, and I think that's one common denominator. I think, you know, to do this work, um, the, the the usually the odds are so formidable when you're trying to change something, whether it's hunger, or the environment, climate change, uh, poverty. Uh, that you have to have a little bit of a sense of being willing to break the rules as well. If you just do things in the, in the conventional way, you're probably going to get conventional results. Um, when people ask, you know, w- what we hire for at Share Our Strength, my first response always is jaywalkers. You know, I don't want people who are just going to stand and wait at the light. I don't want felons either, you know, but, you know, we want people who are going to, you know, really do what they have to do to, to get the job done. And I think you see that certainly in a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've worked with. And I guess, you know, finally, and it relates to this idea of bearing witness, people who really put themselves close to the issue. One of the reasons I think we've stayed fresh at Share Our Strength is we go up, we kind of force ourselves to get away from our desk and get out into the community uh, and see and feel things that we know are going to move us. Uh, my wife, Rosemary, always talks about how, you know, if you go to Ethiopia once uh, and then you talk about it the, the following year and the next year and the next year and you never go back, it becomes what she calls like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. You know, it starts to fade. It gets a little bit pale. Uh, and so you've got to, I think you've got to reconnect to that. As you were talking, it kind of is interesting. I'm looking at the title of your latest book, "The Imaginations of Unreasonable Men." That, that's what you're describing. It's um, you're, this is the quest and malaria. You're yes. describing people who have just said, "You know what? We're not going to go with the status quo. We're going to believe that something like ending malaria, ending childhood hunger, is possible." Yeah, you've got to be a little bit unreasonable, I think, because when people hear it on face value, they say things like, "You know, well, that's you know, that's not going to happen. That's that's too big of a goal." And so it does take people who. Uh, push, I think, you know, maybe unreasonable in terms of their goals, even unreasonable in terms of their tactics or strategies sometime, but still somehow stay within, at least enough within the mainstream that, they're, that, that they can build the support they need and the constituency they need to get that done. That book takes its title from a George Bernard Shaw passage uh, in A Play Man and Superman in which he says the, um, the, the, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world around him. The unreasonable man tries to get the world to adapt itself to him. Uh, therefore, all progress in changing the world depends on the unreasonable man. So I got stuck with that gender bias, which was George Bernard Shaw's, not mine, but I've, I've heard about it from a few places. At the end of the article that Jed Coffin wrote in Maine Magazine about you, he said, he asked you, what is the universe trying to tell you? And your answer was that all of us, no matter what we do or where we are, can and want to contribute all of us have the capacity to share our strength in our own best way. So people who are listening who want to be part of this effort, how do you suggest that they connect back in some way to that still small voice that we were referring to and yeah. somehow 
help you. Yeah. Well, I think listening to that voice and doesn't necessarily have to be by helping us, um, although we would, you know, love to have people's help. Um, but I think, you know, finding what it is that you're, that you care most about, what it is you're most passionate about, um, not just in terms of external issues, what's going on in the world, but things that you, uh, most enjoy doing, um, we work, as you know, with a lot of chefs and restaurateurs, and we do f- food and wine events here in Maine and around the country. And the most common uh, response I get back from chefs is, I never knew I could make a difference in this community just by being a chef. You know, they think of this as their work and as their vocation and their trade. Uh, but then when we create this vehicle to say, and also by cooking or also by teaching nutrition education and things you might take for granted, you can actually impact other people's lives. Uh, that's a that's kind of an epiphany for them. And so our, our intellectual challenge, our design challenge is how do we do that with other communities? How do we do it with uh, architects and writers? We've, uh, at Share Strength, we've had more than 15 books published um, by, uh, you know, Random House and, and other publishers uh, where writers donated original work to us. I actually, this is kind of a main connection, but back in 1987 when Gary Hart's presidential campaign came to a very sudden end, I was trying to figure out, okay, where does, how does Share Our Strength go next? And I got two checks in the mail on the same day, one, one from Stephen King uh, and one from a writer named Sidney Sheldon, uh, who's no longer alive. Um, but it was one of those moments where I was asking myself, what's the universe trying to tell me, right, where these two checks came from, these two writers? And I realized that we need to find ways to get others involved in what we do. So I would hope that people would, you know, a good place to start would be our website at Share Our Strength, nokidhungry.org, um, and just go to that website we've got a whole list of uh, we've got a specific you know kind of uh, uh, section on how to get involved and we've got people who participate in uh, what we call the great american bake sale or the bake sale for no kid hungry we have thousands and thousands of uh, school-aged children across the country and others who uh, do bake sales and uh, contribute money to us we have people who participate in our events we have people who are involved in contacting their schools to see if their schools offer the school breakfast program and they're helping us do a crowdsourced school breakfast map. So there's so many ways for people to get involved. But again, I think um, what you call that still small voice within is really the key to it. I appreciate your sharing your voice, not even the still small voice, but the larger, louder voice. And I'm, it's really a privilege to be sitting with you. Bill Shore, the founder and CEO of Share Our Strength. And I really wish you all the best in your quest to end childhood hunger. I know that you will. Thanks. We'll have me back on after 2015, and we'll, we'll see where we are. We on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. So did you ever wonder why geese fly in a V formation when they head south for the winter? Amazingly, they know that a V pattern increases their speeds by more than 70% versus flying in another pattern or alone. When in formation, they share the leadership and have a mutual respect for their common goal which is to arrive safely at their destination. They equally divide the hardest tasks, gather their faculties, and combine their resources and talents. This unified effort, their formation, makes the journey easier. Less energy is expended because they are all working together for a common cause. When the leader tires, he goes back to the end of the formation, and another team member takes the lead. 
Each goose, or a member of the team, uses their voice, or quack, to encourage the leader to stay focused and to keep organized. So how does the V formation of migrating geese apply to running your business or your household? In a word, team. A group working together to accomplish and achieve the same goal with mutual respect and understanding. Those teams will always come out ahead. Unlike the lowly seagull who scavenges and shouts mine, only looking out for its own best interest, without ever seeming to get anywhere. Geese are unified and always looking out for each other, applying the law of least effort and gaining the most. It's a lesson we all could learn. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. Boothmain.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. When you think of food in Maine, you think of Sam Hayward. You can't really think of anyone else, or at least you think of him first. How's that? But what a lot of people don't know is that Sam Hayward has a very rich background, including time spent as an R&B musician, and also um, has an interest in feeding hungry children in the state of Maine, which goes back many years. I first heard Sam speak down at the Kenny Bunkport Festival at a Tim Harrington dinner, and he was very eloquent in his support of Share Our Strength, which is the organization which is ending childhood hunger. So thanks for coming in and having a conversation with me today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Sam, first, why Maine? I mean, I know that you've been a musician. You have roots in um, New Orleans and Tennessee and New York, but you're here, and you've been here for a while. You've made Maine your home. Why, why is that the case? Wow, I, I fell in love with Maine um, pretty much as soon as I crossed the Kittery Bridge for the first time back in the fall of 1970. My wife and I had, um, had just gotten married the day before, and almost on a whim, we came across from the Finger Lakes District of New York, where we had both spent many formative years, and um, came into Maine just kind of on a whim and fell in love with it right away. I think it was some years after that, when I was working as a musician and not really enjoying it, that uh, some one of my music students, of all people, who was a Cornell Hotel School student at the time, um, asked me in the winter of 1974 when Ithaca, New York, is probably not the most desirable place to live, um, if I'd like to chuck all this and come spend the summer on an island off the coast of Maine. And Jen and I jumped at it and spent three seasons working at the Shoals Marine Lab um, off Kittery and Portsmouth at the Isles of Shoals. And I fell in love with the Gulf of Maine. I fell in love with the resources, the culture. 
of course, the landscape and the seascape. How can you not? And so we figured, let's make a life here and um, went off to a couple of other cities to get a little professional experience rather than going to a culinary school. And by the fall of 1977, we were in Maine and never looked back. In addition to living on an island, you've actually spent time in multiple locations throughout Maine. What was the progression? Well, I'm surprised it's of interest to anybody but me. I th- the, the person who brought me out of New York City um, in 1977, Maurice Andre, um, owned a small French restaurant in South Paris. And when I had run into a little difficulty at the, the, in the kitchen that I was working in in New York, I just felt I was a fish out of water. I, didn't, I was unprepared for much of what I saw there, socially speaking. And um, he offered me a position um, as the chef at his French restaurant, which I did for a couple of years. Um, he became ill and passed away. And like it, as it seemed with a number of other main restaurant people, I took a position kind of in rotation at the Samoset Resort, which was in Extremis at the time, um, and worked there for about a year, and then made my way down the coast to Brunswick, and um, was employed at 22 Lincoln, and then subsequently purchased the restaurant and operated it for 10 years. So that that's a, a little bit of a, a condensed version of how I made my way down to, to the coast from the mountains. Is that when you decided to make Bodenham your home? Yeah, we were living in Owl's Head, um, and I was commuting down to Brunswick, and that was stressful. We had our first child while we were living in Owl's Head. And uh, we made a decision to try to find something in Brunswick. We couldn't find anything we thought was affordable. And um, somebody contacted us from this little one-horse town that I didn't really know much about called Bodenham, eight or ten miles away from my Brunswick restaurant. And we moved in there and um, have expanded the house several times since then and live a great life. It's a beautiful place to live. Merry Meeting Bay is, a, as you probably know, a unique ecosystem. Um, environmentally, it's gorgeous. Uh, it's it's changing. It's in transition. But it was a great place to raise three children, and they're all grateful that they had, they had the experience of the woods and the bay, and canoeing on the bay, and sleeping overnight on the islands, and being with their friends. Just the freedom that they had there was, as children and and teenagers, was extraordinary, and they all relish those memories. How has your experience in Maine and in various parts of Maine contributed to your interest in building restaurants like Four Street? Maybe maybe we can get into that by by talking about how local food found its way into not just my restaurant but many others at about the same time. In the summer of 1981, um, a local farmer actually from Lisbon knocked on my back door at my Brunswick restaurant with a basket of produce, the like of which simply I'd never seen before in any of the locations that I'd been cooking. There were leeks that were blanched, that means the the white parts, two feet long, herbs of such vibrant green and incredible aroma. I was just shocked by it. And a number of root vegetables and and greens that that he was just sort of showing off to see if there was any interest on my part in striking up a relationship. And as floored as I was by it, I, there was no way I could say no. 
that was really the entree of local food into my restaurant and into my consciousness. Up to that point, I think everybody in our craft around the country knew about the quality of Maine seafood, um, iconic cod and haddock in particular, and of course, lobster. And scallops were, again, at that point, a very big um, fishery in the Gulf of Maine and the banks, and they were everywhere. Less known was that there was some pretty good livestock being grown in Maine. The Maine has a lot of pasture land um, that that may be underutilized for growing livestock. We're trying to change some of that. So we could get all of the fish that we wanted um, locally, almost none of the livestock products that we wanted locally. And frankly, there wasn't a great connection with farms that produced produce, vegetables, fruits, herbs, and salads. We didn't have that connection at that point. So it was something very new to me. And by the way, I think that was happening all through the state at just about the same time. Um, remember, Mafka started in 1973, I believe. Um, I think that's about right. And at the time, it, the organic farming movement and gardening movement in Maine was very small, but it was clearly growing. And we had the right cultural resources. We had the right land base for it. We had the right conditions for um, a hands-on um, uh, form of agriculture, small-scale agriculture and farming. Um, and we had the land base because there were so many farms at that point that had been farmed intensively for generations, and one generation of farmers was ready to retire and sell out. There were inexpensive farms available to kids, if you will, from away. Um, and that phenomenon that happened in the 70s and 80s that we now call the back to the land movement really took off. And I would just happen to be here kind of in the midst of that. So I was able to, in my little restaurant, take advantage of it. And, but, but it was happening other places as well. In the midst of all of this, this abundance of produce and seafood and even the rising abundance of livestock, what you were noticing, however, was that not everyone had access to food. That's true. There seemed to be a real inequality there, that, that the communities that had farmers markets, um, those were pretty well utilized in the 80s, at least, at least from what I was conscious of. Um, that's grown, of course. Now we have somewhere around 100 farmers markets active in the state of Maine, many of them even in the wintertime. Didn't really see that much evidence of that in the 1980s. What, we, what was pretty clear to me living out in the South Paris area was that the availability of good quality food, not just industrial food, but according to somebody's definition of what's good and healthful, healthily produced food, that wasn't that plentiful out there. There seemed to be a lot of inequality in the accessibility of good quality food. Um, and that, that continues now, sad to say. Um, and and if, I can, if I can just bring up one small point, this is in spite of the fact that um, an outfit in Vermont called the Parade of the Heifers, have you heard about their report recently? Um, I think that's the name of the organization, recently ranked states according to the accessibility and availability of locally produced food. And naturally, being a Vermont outfit, I'm not surprised they named Vermont as number one, and number two nationwide was Maine, number three was New Hampshire, and then there was everybody else. And lowest on that list were states like, surprisingly, Texas, Florida, 
and some other Gulf states, which really surprised me. Um, so we're already known as a state that that promotes local food and tries to make local food um, available to everybody. Uh, I don't think we've been completely successful yet, but we're working toward it. Everybody's working toward it. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. One of the things that we all think about as we get older and we age is we want to make a difference in the world. We want to, we reach the calling part of our life. We start with a job and we go into a career and then we move into our calling years. And one of the biggest things we can do is be a good steward, a good steward of the land, a good steward with your estate and your family. Just be a good steward. And stewardship is something that many of my clients over the years have taught me, and I've, I've learned by example through them. I have a friend who I've worked with for a number of years, and we've sort of rebuilt her childhood village together slowly, piece by piece, starting with the community center and then the, the park in front of the town and the church. And her husband, who died several years ago, talked about stewardship and discussed stewardship and was very passionate about that. And I go through that town now and see the trees maturing and the plantings mature, and I say, wow, this is what, this is what Dave meant. This is exactly what Dave meant. This is stewardship. And through their generosity, they've improved the lives of many people. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendinitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. At the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we believe we are helping to build a better world with the help of many. We'd like to bring to you people who are examples of those building a better world in the areas of wellness, health, and fitness. To talk to you today about one of these, fitness, is Jim Greeterichs, the president of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Here's Jim. Did you watch the Olympics last year and see the athletes wearing that funky tape on their shoulders and wonder what the heck is that deal? Well, it's called kinesiology athletic tape, and it works like an orthopedic brace without limiting range of motion. It provides stability for muscles, joints, and tendons, and helps reduce pain while maintaining flexibility for better support and increased endurance. So if you have knee, shoulder, ankle, or foot pain, or have that one muscle that just flares up after increased activity, come in and have our staff help you out. We'll have you performing like an Olympic beach volleyballer in no time. I'm Jim Graterex, president of Black Bear Medical. Come on in and see our trained staff down at 275 Marginal Way 
and at www.blackbearmedical.com. Well, I appreciate your efforts because I've been to the last three Taste of the Nations. I was at the one that was at Wolf Neck Farm this past June. In fact, I remember the rain, the thunder, the lightning, yeah. all of the difficulties actually that were associated with really putting on this great party. And what I noticed was that people were genuinely happy to be there. They were very excited to be doing this work for this organization. Well, the organization really did a great job of making sure that everybody was going to have a great time. So I'm it, it, that, that was a, um, a group-wide effort to make sure that, that the party was success, a success. I remember one of the first ones that I did in the, in the latest wave was out on Cow Island. And having to take the ferry out to Cow Island, um, there was no place... And by the way, the weather was terrible. It was it was raining and drizzling and foggy and actually quite clammy and cold. But they'd done a great job setting up the party space, and we were all, we all had to offload all, all of our food and coolers and big crates and boxes down literally a plank of wood from the bow of the ferry down onto the beach, where we loaded it into golf carts and whatever else we could we could uh, haul on and took it over to the um, to the dinner site that was a pretty interesting evening we set up a kitchen um that was part of that no, was the, um I'm trying to think of the name of the organization that was out there at the time a ripple effect and so we set up a kitchen in their facility in a screened in building but when we ran the food out to the tent where people were seated we had to run it under umbrellas so we had to have two or three people holding umbrellas and running food um, out to them that was an interesting challenge but it came off really well and people really had a great time so in we live in maine we know that there's nothing that's predictable about the weather and the conditions under which we operate so you rise to the occasion why do you think that people are so passionate about Taste of the Nation, Share Our Strength, Ending Childhood Hunger? What is it that causes people to run across you know, the field with dinner under an umbrella to serve to people? It's a good question. I'm not sure I can answer it um, f- fully, but I think that people that live in Maine tend to be incredibly generous and have a strong communitarian spirit. Um, so when there is a need and we find out about the need i think people really do rally to a cause um i i think we also love being in beautiful places and that's where these parties are generally presented um and what's better than a main summer this this is just this the sweetest uh experience anybody can have so to to set up a place along the shore or on an offshore island or even on a boat and and have a great dinner and a great party it really brings people together in an in- interesting way and add to that the importance of the cause and the fact that these are our community's children that we're really trying to benefit and it's pretty irresistible you began your career as a musician you were in music school can you draw any sort of parallels and or intersections with your life now? That's a little bit harder to do. I, I, uh, when I was a working musician, I could look down the line and, and imagine myself as a washed up third rate failure. <laughs> so it really wasn't, it wasn't going the way I wanted. And I was playing f- kinds of music that I really hadn't planned on getting trapped in. Uh, uh, I, I read an article by... Uh, 
David Brooks the other day where he was talking about the changes in um, people's lives as we age and in their in their priorities and their motivations as they age. And he talked about how retired people, if I can use this word on the air, um, demonstrate a certain horniness for service. I loved the phrase. I thought it was great. And you quite often see that in retired people. My own father, who um, in his last years became very passionate about um, delivering meals on wheels. And I think now that I'm kind of too old to be a lead line cook or even a strong prep cook at 4th Street, and I leave that to the more talented and more athletic, more physically strong younger guys, that I would like to devote some of my time, some of the time that I save by not being slaving in the kitchen every day, um, to be of some use to the community at large. And I, th I think that's been a motivating factor and why probably I get overwhelmed with some of the nonprofit work that I do. But it's worth it. It's worth it. What would you suggest to people who are listening as far as um, trying to support organizations that end childhood hunger, people who are not chefs and do not work at 4th Street? What could they do in their own lives to be supportive? There are plenty of other things that people can do um, that other than um, uh, prepare food for an, an event like Share Our Strength, that organization does depend on volunteers to a tremendous extent. Um, and I don't mean just restaurant people. So they can get a hold of Share Our Strength in Maine, Share Our Strength Portland, and, and get involved on other levels. There are many other ways in which people can be involved in hunger issues, from getting in, from working with local schools to get gardens going so that students are introduced to the joys of raising food and the joys of eating the food that they produce, which is really important in developing their sensi sensibilities and awareness of what constitutes good food. Um, people can grow some of their own in their own gardens. People can volunteer with other agencies in their communities. Um, and one of the things that, that I frequently find myself speaking about is the amount of food waste that Americans produce generally. One study that I read estimated that 40% of the food that people bring home, that consumers bring home, um, actually gets thrown out and not consumed. So building awareness about that, that in a cheap food first society, we don't value the food resources that we have to the extent that perhaps we should and make the best possible use of every ounce of food that we purchase um, and bring home, let alone in restaurants, where I see what comes back on plates and um, pay attention to that and, and sometimes adjust my thinking about what it is that we're serving according to that. So there, there are a lot of ways in which people can get involved, but I, from awareness to volunteering to efforts on their own within their own communities. Sam, how can people find out about 4th Street and the other restaurants that you are affiliated with? Well, my partners operate Street & Company, Standard Baking, and a little seafood wholesaler called Upstream Trucking. Um, and those are all on websites, so they can go to those. Sadly, 4th Street's website is 15 years out of date and really bad. <laughs> it's a constant embarrassment to me, So I, uh, but I haven't been able to get around to actually fixing that thing. So I continue to work on it. And but despite that, 
it doesn't seem to be, ever be a problem to fill your restaurant. So oh, somehow yes. people find you. Right. And, and maybe that's an argument for why I shouldn't spend a lot of money and effort on fixing a website that I think just doesn't work. But it'd be great if we could offer some links to people so that people from away and people in Maine and Portland could learn about some of the other efforts that are going on out there. Um, Portland has changed so much since I've started working in Maine. And if I can just toss out an anecdote that I think demonstrates that, um, you know that there are a ton of new hotels that have either been just constructed or being renovated or are in the process of being built, which is a shock to me. I don't understand who's doing the marketing uh, research to see how many how many how many hotel rooms can Portland support but I was speaking with a developer the other day I think it was actually at taste of the nation I said what's going on and he said well you guys did this and he was exaggerating of course but what he was saying was that the restaurant scene in Portland became so well known and so well respected around the country that additional tourists, additional visitors were coming to Maine, ratcheting up demand for hotel rooms, and the developers responded by building all these new rooms. It's it's incredible to think that, and and I don't want to exaggerate that effect, but it, but that but that a food culture, a local food culture, could um, engender or have a part in engendering that much economic growth in a small city like Portland. That's astonishing to me. Sam, it's been a privilege to have you today. I, Having also lived in Maine for, well, since about 77 myself, I've seen all the changes. I've been to your restaurants many times, um, and I appreciate all the work you're doing with Share Our Strength. I know the people who are listening can read about you as part of um, Maine Magazine's 50 Mainers, which is the July issue, and I think it's a well-deserved honor that they've um, put you in the top 50 Mainers, I believe, to watch and know about in our state. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure to be here. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 101, Trailblazing. Our guests have included Billy Shore and Sam Hayward. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. We hope you'll join us for two important upcoming events. The first is the Rev3 She Jams Triathlon, August 25th, at Old Orchard Beach. This unique race will be limited to 300 people and will bring a world-class venue to Old Orchard Beach, allowing for the opportunity to create a life-changing experience for women who participate. Proceeds go to the Maine Cancer Foundation. For more information, go to shejamstry.com. Also, join us on August 24th for the Art by the Sea Gala at the Agunquit Museum of American Art. The Art by the Sea Benefit Auction is the museum's major annual fundraiser. For more information, visit agunquitmuseum.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, D-O-C-T-O-R Lisa, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.com. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that you have enjoyed our trailblazing show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine. 
Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine. Apothecary by Design. Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage. Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes. And Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.